Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio episode number one. Very, very, very happy and very excited to be here. My name is Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we've been developing this show for a really long time, so it's it's almost surreal to think that we're actually here at this point. I, I'm just, I'm almost speechless, <laughs> which isn't going to work because this is, in fact, a podcast. So uh, the, the point of this podcast really is, you know, just to discuss Disney films. And, and each week we're going to highlight a different Disney film. We both love these movies. We love the parks. We love everything about the company. So I, I just think that this is so in our wheelhouse. We both have media backgrounds. You know, why don't why don't you explain to our to our new friends and, and our audience here uh, what your background is in film and well, television, of course. Monorail Radio is the perfect job for me because I love the movies. No, in all seriousness, though, um, I've been obsessed with movies, especially Disney movies, since I was a kid. Um, you know, I was kind of an indoorsy kind of kid. I was always either reading books or watching TV and movies. And my parents would always say, oh, don't you want to go outside? And I was like, no, I really don't. I'd rather, you know, be consuming all this stuff. And what I didn't realize when I was a kid is that I wasn't really a, ki- a couch potato. I was doing research for later on in life. And um, I ended up taking a TV production class in high school and just totally fell in love with the process. And it wasn't really until then that I realized this could be more j- than just a hobby that I could make a career out of it. And I went to I went to film school and um, just fell in love with the whole process even more. It was so much fun and it was such a creative environment. I loved my time in college. And uh, since then, I've done a lot of uh, more, more on the post-production end. I've done some video editing. Um, I've done wedding videos. I've edited entertainment news. Uh, did two years in reality TV, which was a whole different adventure. Um, but I still love it. And uh, I'm excited to take on this new project and be able to talk about something that I love so much with the Disney community because Disney fans are are just a fun group. So I'm really excited to interact with everyone on this level. Yeah, we're our own breed. Just to give you an idea, because some of you heard a jingle in the background, and that's the dog that was running around. The dog's name is Walt. I mean, this isn't like a casual, hey, I kind of like to watch the movies, and I kind of go to a couple of movies a year. No, this is this is an absolute obsession. Um, but, it, but it's one of those things where so many people have the love for these films and the love for this company. Like, it, it is so universal. Um, there are so few people that uh, that I've spoken to that that don't enjoy the parks and don't enjoy the films um, and didn't grow up with them. Um, you know, it's it's just it, it's it is it's just an incredible community of people. It's true. And when you meet like a Disney person, so to speak, it, it's like an instant friendship. There's such a common bond right away. And, you know, you just kind of like fan over Disney. It's amazing that you say that because it's absolutely true. Um, I'm a part of a running team called the WDW Radio Running Team and Lou Mangello's got a great podcast and and does a great job uh, raising money for the Make-A-Wish Foundation through the Dream Team Project. And the first time I ran a race with them was the Wine and Dine Half Marathon back in 2015. And it was like we had our running team shirts and as soon as we saw each other we're like, oh yeah, you're my friend. And I had never met any of these people in my life. And, and it was, like you said, 
instantaneous. And now there are some of these people I interact with daily um, through text or Facebook or, or what have you. And, and I'm, I'm excited to finally be back behind the stick because I, I worked in radio for a long time. I got my start, actually, um, of all things, and so many of us did, on a pirate radio station uh, out of Huntington, New York. Um, in somebody's basement doing sports. And from there, I went on to St. Leo University, where I was the play-by-play and color commentary voice for their baseball, soccer, softball, and basketball teams. Um, eventually, I did graduate from CW Post, where I was a part of WCWP. Um, I had a very successful uh, podcast with uh, Chris Hessel called NYIFYI. Some of you are probably are listeners that carried over. Um, we talked New York Islanders hockey once a week. We did it for about seven years. Um, and and for a while the Islanders had actually syndicated us, and we were on ITV. So I haven't uh, I haven't been uh, behind the mic in a while, other than voiceover work. So I am so excited to be back here and to be discussing a topic like these films. You are leaving out a major part of your career, though. Am I? Um, I believe so. Sean was also on the air at a top forty radio station, a local Long Island station, um, where we met. So we really wouldn't have this podcast without that. Yeah, I know. It's almost it's kind of scary. That, it's kind of <laughs> scary that we have to thank them for something. I try to block so much of that out. Now we have to thank them for this. Again, thanks for that. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know what? Why don't you just take the reins here? You can do this podcast. I'll see you later. Oh boy. I'm going to go play with the dog. Oh. Well, oh boy. Well, at any rate, uh, we, we do have our first film, um, and we thought that this was very fitting to, um, to kick this off, this, this, this first episode, with a film that was not only very special to our childhood, but was so special to so many other kids of our generation, and it also really was the, the uh, renaissance of Disney animation, and the first film that we picked for this is Little Mermaid. Yeah, um... For me, this is a great way to kick it off because on a personal level, this was the first movie that I actually saw in theaters and, you know, that I went on to sort of have a career in this medium. This was, you know, really my first step into it and what first made me really want to get into television and film. Um, I just loved the experience of going to a movie theater, but to see animation like that and the big musical numbers, I just instantly fell in love with it um you know and I think it is important for us to kick it off because I know that we're not the only ones of our generation who love this movie you know I think it's our age group a little bit that identifies with this movie um and more importantly looking back on it you could say that this kicked off the Disney dynasty of our generation but you know back in the day they were referring to this as the renaissance because this movie really did kind of save the studios. That is another story for another day. But um, I think it's just as important to the company as it was to our childhood. Absolutely. And and, and this was actually, um, of all of the Disney films, this was my mother's favorite Disney movie. Um, so it, it holds such, such a special place for all of us. Um, so why don't I throw it back to you? Why don't you give us the rundown of this film? Explain to us what happens in this movie. So a synopsis of the movie for those of you who live under a rock or under the sea, as it were, uh, The Little Mermaid 
centers around Ariel. She is a headstrong teenager who is obsessed with human culture. And more particularly, she is obsessed with a boy, the Prince Eric. Um, Her father is King Triton, King of the Seas. And he is trying to suppress this because he thinks that humans are dangerous. And he tries to control Ariel and forbids her from going up to the surface to check out what the humans are doing and look at the boats and going anywhere near the land. Um, So, of course, this doesn't sit well with Ariel. And in exchange for her voice, she gets legs from the sea witch Ursula. Ursula gives her three days without a voice to make Prince Eric fall in love with her. And he has to kiss her. So Ariel goes to the surface and with the help of her friends Flounder, Sebastian and Scuttle, she tries to win over the Prince Eric. Now, of course, it's not that simple, other than not having a voice. The plot thickens when Ursula uses Ariel's voice to try and win Eric over herself. Ariel had saved Eric from drowning in a shipwreck, and all he remembers of her is her voice. So as soon as Ursula shows up in human form, of course, Eric thinks that this is his dream girl, and he plans to marry her on the last day that Ariel has to win him over. And that's astonishing because he literally looked right at her. Yes. He looked right <laughs> at her. So they set sail on their wedding cruise and uh, with the help of Flounder, Sebastian, and Scuttle, the wedding is absolutely ruined. Ariel makes it to the boat and Ursula turns back into her octopus form. And she tries to just kill everyone. She tries to rule the ocean. She tries to overthrow Triton. She tries to capture Ariel and and take her back to her garden of poor unfortunate souls. But of course, Prince Eric saves the day. And in the end, Triton realizes that after everything that Ariel has gone through to be with him, she does deserve to be a human and live on the land and live with her prince. So... It ends with Triton giving up his daughter. Ariel becomes human officially, and she marries Eric. And everybody lives happily ever after. Now, upon viewing this film, and we've seen this film a hundred times. You grew up with it. Um, you, You wonder now, watching it with sort of fresh eyes and as an adult, you know, the the screenwriting itself. For the most part, I feel like the script of this film, it's well written. Absolutely. Um, It doesn't have um, that cheesy quality of some of the earlier Disney movies. I don't want to say cheesy because I I love Disney movies and I don't want to say anything negative about them. But, you know, Disney was known for their fairy tales. And when you compare Ariel to princesses like Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, well, Snow Snow White is a bad example because she really doesn't have a lot of dialogue. She's asleep for her whole movie. And same thing with Sleeping Beauty. So that is kind of a bad example. But I feel like a lot of the earlier movies, they used like a lot of like flowery princess talk. And really, Ariel is the first princess we've seen that's really like a, a stronger woman. 
and I think a lot of that had to do with the time period. I mean, this film was was made in the 1980s, and the 80s were such a different and unique time. And there was teenage angst, and like you always had angst. You had it in the 60s with the Flower Children, and and then again in the 70s, especially with with teenagers that were getting shipped off to Vietnam, and they were sort of against it. Well, they were very much against it, but teenage angst and Generation X was so big. Like she was the Gen X Disney princess. You're absolutely right. That's a really interesting point. Um, and for the most part, I think the script does hold up very well. There are some there are some problems with it. Uh, you know, to begin with, um, it's not unless you watch the bonus features of the film um, and the deleted scenes, or if you read into it, that you find out that um, Ursula was actually Triton's sister. Now, if you watch the movie you kind of don't understand other than her just being diabolical what her motivation is and why she has this obsession a simple throwaway line which they did have before they they threw it on the cutting room floor would have been nice yeah especially because and and I wasn't sure if this was something that I had like heard and it was kind of planted in my mind or because they do sprinkle enough breadcrumbs where you do kind of pick up on that. Ursula does say, when I used to live in the palace. And she's not really after Ariel. She's using Ariel to get to Triton. So you do kind of get the impression of this power struggle. And I think from there, you are able to draw enough of a conclusion that, well, why would there be a power struggle? It's probably because it was a sibling rivalry and Triton ended up winning and becoming the king of the sea. And Ursula does also say that she was banished from the palace, but like like I said, they're sprinkling the breadcrumbs, but there's really not enough meat and potatoes. And I to find out that that is on the cutting room floor was kind of shocking. Like how could you leave out such a big piece of information? Well, and that's that's like the second biggest thing that was almost on the cutting room floor. What nearly ended up on the cutting room floor was a part of your world which is amazing when you think about how that entire movie lays out and part of your world for lack of better term is sampled quote-unquote sampled so many times in the movie they keep coming back to it you get that refrain of the music even if there's no words right you can hear the you know the piano part right and we'll talk about that song in particular a little bit later but just to think you know how how many important parts of this plot were almost cut from this film. I don't know that this film exists or even makes sense without any of that. Right. It's, yeah, to me, I I honestly love this movie. Um, You know, I'll just come right out and say it. So there is a little bit of a bias, but even that's a red flag for me. Like, I, I can't believe that such a big, important piece would be left out. And I don't know if that was something like they cut for time. It, it had to be because I feel like that's not something you could just say, well, we don't really need this. I think you do. Otherwise, Ursula is just evil for evil's sake, which does work. And I think it worked back then. But I feel like uh, the movie audience as a whole has come so far where you kind of need backstory. And I feel like everybody wants some sort of motivation and I just really important piece of the puzzle to leave out. And I think that this, you know, it's easy for someone to say, well, it's a cartoon and it's meant for children and it has to be under an hour and a half. And these are very important parts of the plot where 
it becomes confusing, and you're right, it becomes unmotivated. But they're able to kind of pull it all together, and without cutting all of it completely, the movie still makes sense. There is, though, a bit of repetition that to, it gets to a point of being annoying, um, where we get it. She has a beautiful voice. You don't have to keep telling us she's got a beautiful voice. I did a count when we watched this. Did you? Of how many times, <laughs> not not how many times they referenced her voice, because they talk about a lot how, you know, how are we, you know, she has no voice, and how are we going to do this, and she has no voice, and she can't talk. But just referencing how good her voice is, in, in, an, in a movie that's a, that's a hair under 90 minutes, they talk about it seven times. Oh, wow. That's a lot. That's I, a lot. It is. Not something I ever really noticed. It's funny. I, I noticed it even as a kid, but it never really bothered me. But as I've gotten older, I'm like, why do they keep talking about it? And I, it, never, it never occurred to me, but on this last viewing that we did, I counted it seven times. They talked about how great her voice is. I think that may be something where you have to keep in mind that this is a movie that is kind of targeted at children. I mean, okay, we're in our 30s still talking about it. So to an extent, that's nonsense. However, to a child watching this, you maybe really do have to drive that point home a little bit more because her voice is what she's trading. It's a big deal. So I think you do kind of have to shine that spotlight on it. The Maybe because, you know, I was talking before about fluffy dialogue. When you look back on movies... Uh, off the top of my head like Snow White they would always say that she's so fair and kind and with Cinderella it's she's hardworking and she's so nice and she never really gets the time of day over her stepsisters I think this might be something that they tried to modernize instead of saying how beautiful Ariel is they're talking about a, a quality about her instead of just her looks so I'm wondering if that has to do with being in the eighties and being of its time. Right. Um, but all, I mean, the script is, is, is very good. Otherwise the film does have some plot holes that I think are separate from just dialogue yes. to begin with. You've got Ursula who can shape shift. Okay. Well, if you can shape shift and be whatever you want, why, why have you been waiting and pining to target Ariel? If you can just shapeshift to marry a prince and become powerful, I mean, I get it. It's on the land. It's not in the sea. But if you're all this power, it's like, why did you target her? Why didn't you just do this a while ago? Well, because she is using her to get to Triton. And that's, again, like I said, this is a very important piece of the puzzle that they just left on the cutting room floor. Ursula, f forget knowing that she's Triton's sister. This is a power struggle. This is about her revenge. So... To just take over another realm probably isn't good enough for her. Right. And, you know, Triton at one point, you know, I I never really liked King Triton, even as a kid and to this day, I don't really like him. And the reason being is because he sits there and he asks Sebastian, the first time he scolds Ariel, he goes, was I too harsh on her? What do you think? And he's leaving Sebastian to be like his right hand man and give him that advice. And then he goes on this reign of terror and, destro and destroys the grotto. It it's like, it's so heartless and it's so mean. It's like, how was yelling at her too aggressive? And then you went in there and you destroyed the place. That's so interesting to me that you think he's mean. Because to me, Triton is like 
the quintessential single father doing his best. I think he's got a heart of gold and he's like a mush when it comes to his daughters. No, Danny Tanner was the quintessential (laughs) single father doing his best. (laughs) No, seriously, though, because you you bought it up the first time. I think that you really see the single father thing is exactly what you said when he um, asked Sebastian if he was too hard on her. He's not trying to control Ariel. I mean, he is trying to control Ariel. I shouldn't say that, but he's concerned for her safety. Mind you, because this film is centered around Ariel, he's got six other daughters to worry about. And he's also a king and the ruler of the sea. He's got a lot going on. So all he's trying to do is protect his daughter. And that's the fine line that he's walking, is trying to control her and trying to enforce this rule of, you know, don't go to the surface, don't interact with humans, it's dangerous. This is really all out of love and all out of protection. So he goes off on her and his first instinct is, oh my God, was I too hard? I don't want to push my daughter away. Now, as far as the grotto being destroyed, yeah, that got a little violent. He got a little crazy. But this is also, don't forget, the first time that he finds out how bad the extent of her going up to the surface really is. She's got an entire treasure trove, and that is not a small space of things that she has gathered from shipwrecks. And, you know, he doesn't know. And and she's got 20 thingamabobs. She does. (laughs) But we don't know as an audience, and just the same way he doesn't know how many times she's actually gone to the surface, whether it is just shipwrecks or if she's, like, going to the beach and collecting things. So... I think that's just kind of a knee-jerk reaction to everything. A little strong? Yeah, I'll give you that one. But I certainly don't think that he's mean. Especially, too, you know, it is reinforced that he is like this clueless father trying to figure out his teenage daughters. After Ariel falls in love with Eric and she's kind of going around the palace like la-di-da and singing... He's like, what's going on? And one of her sisters is like, isn't it obvious she's in love? And he's like, what? Ariel? See, I think, all right, maybe he's not Danny Tanner, but I I think he's more of a clueless father doing his best than a mean king. Mm -hmm. The the only other real issue I have with the script, and even I guess with the plot, is the ending of this film is so anticlimactic. Not that uh, Ursula being killed by Eric isn't. That's a very strong moment. Um, And I kind of like the fact that, in a way, Eric gets his redemption. It wasn't Ariel saving him again. He was able to save the the Mer people. And that's sort of where Triton sees that not all humans are bad. That flips him. That's a very important part of this film. Because it drives to a conclusion. But when we reach the conclusion, all Triton had to do with his trident was give her legs. You're telling me you had this ability the entire time? You Let's go back to the shape-shifting. You can shape-shift any person you want at any time. You opt not to do it. She goes through all this trouble. It almost leads me to believe that he could have not only shapeshifted her, but he probably could have given her a voice back. I know that the, that the contract that she signed with Ursula was 
was ironclad and it was legal, you couldn't break that. And I guess you kind of go back and forth there. And he does try and break it with his trident. Right. It, he can't. And the other thing with the trident, not that not that Disney is, you know, per se going to follow um, the mythology of these gods, but the trident and Triton's power, if you know this, the real story as it was told, was he controlled the waves. Right. He did. He he couldn't take his trident and just zap things and turn them into whatever he wanted. But they're going to Disneyfy this a little bit, and, and I'll at that I'll I'll push that aside because it, it doesn't need to be so literal because it's an animated film for children. But I just feel like you build up to something and that he could have done the entire time. No, but I think that's exactly it. If you do take into account the real mythology behind it, he can control the waves, but he can't control his his own daughter. That is the entire relationship between them in this movie. And I think, you know, you, you said it before, is why didn't he just give her legs or give her back her voice to begin with? He's trying to keep her safe. And what he had to realize when Eric saved his life and all of them are people is that not all humans are bad. He wasn't going to give his daughter away thinking that humans are dangerous. He had to learn that this human is going to take care of her and love her the same way he would. And they have this, like, really sappy goodbye at the end where he... He says goodbye to her and he gives her the, the rainbow. But it doesn't need to be goodbye forever because we know that you can come up to the surface whenever you want. Yes, they can, but they, they try not to because not everybody is Prince Eric. Not everybody is going to save the mermaids. Some of them are either going to, you know, the, the people are afraid they're going to be fished and cooked. If you're applying that to a real life situation, I don't think anybody's going to like cook a mermaid up like it's, no. you know, a tilapia. It's not ahi tuna. That's what I'm saying. But I think the the, the bigger threat is that humans are going to put them in some tank and put them on display at SeaWorld or something like that. So, yeah, if I'm a mermaid, I'm not going to visit the surface that frequently. But to your point, if he can do whatever he wants... Hey, Ariel, you want to come down for a weekend? Here you go. Here's your fins back. It's not goodbye forever, but how dare you, sappy? <laughs> how dare you? Oh, my God. That's the last line of the movie is I love you, Daddy, every single time. It still puts a lump in my throat. I'm not saying it isn't heartfelt. You're heartless, sappy. Oh, no, no. It's heartfelt. No one's going to deny that it is or that it is not. I'm just saying that you're acting as if this can be goodbye forever, but because you have the mighty fork of God and you can do whatever you want, <laughs> it doesn't need to be. That is true. Yeah. No, you're right. It, it It's not permanent. But I think it's a strong ending to the movie. Because what are the other options? Well, Ariel, I see you're in love, but uh, not yet. You know, come back down to the sea. It's, you know, her relationship with her father isn't growing if if he's still going to keep her trapped down there. And she's never going to be happy. It, You know, Sebastian realizes that about halfway through the movie, too, is when, uh, you know, when they don't think Eric is going to come through and kiss her. Sebastian starts kind of racking his brain like, what are we going to do? You're going to belong to the sea witch. And that's when worse than belonging to the sea witch is that Ariel is not going to get what makes her happy. And that's when Sebastian decides, like, I really need to help her make this happen. So I think Triton realizes, too, that 
no matter how much he tries to keep her locked up, she's just going to keep doing what she's doing. Um, I mean, that's that's all I have to say about the script and about the plot. I otherwise think that it is very good. I mean, for me to sit there for an hour and a half or so and watch a movie and only find three issues with it, I think that that it doesn't make it a perfect film, but that's it's pretty close. I mean, that's pretty close. Like I said, I am biased, but it is very hard to find fault with this movie. And and you'll see as this as this podcast progresses that this particular movie is going to be the basis of comparison for a lot. Yeah. A- a- but it has to be because there are great characters in all with the exception of a couple of things in my opinion at least. It's a very good script. It is a very good plot. The music is unbelievable. The music is just incredible. Unless you have anything else you'd like to add about the script, I think now is the time to discuss the music. No, I think the music is probably what makes this one of my favorite movies because obviously everybody knows Disney musicals are, you know, they're so much fun and the songs are always great and they're so entertaining, but I feel like this is Disney at its finest. And after a long time where Disney really hadn't been at its finest. I mean, they, they they had been, the animators had been thrown off the studio lot. They were moved, um, I think, into, into was it Glendale that they went? Out of Burbank into Glendale? In trailers. Yeah, in, in, in trailers. In, like, Cassone trailers in a parking lot. <laughs> the parking lot is still there, but there's no structures because the trailers are gone. I mean, you think about what this company produced and the timeless films that they made... And they got kicked off of their own studio lot. I mean, it's it's almost inconceivable. It is. And at the same time, it also worked for them because they were like running their own show out there. I mean, yes, you did have the new regime of, uh, you know, Hollywood producers over at Disney breathing down their necks. But at the same time, they were kind of just off in their own little worlds and free to create whatever they wanted. Right. And they were going after, you know, the big uh, the big actors and the big directors once Katzenberg, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells got in there. I mean, it was it was a very different time in Disney. Um, the three of them helped saved helped save that company. Um, and there's a great documentary that eventually I'm sure we'll touch on. If you haven't seen Waking Sleeping Beauty, it's great. And they talk about this movie a lot. It's worth, it's worth watching if you can get your hands on it. Um, the music though, you're right. The music is what makes this film. And we talked earlier about how, uh, part of your world nearly ended up on the cutting room floor. The movie does not exist without that song. No. It can't. The fact that... They keep coming back to the song and they keep, you know, like you said, the the interlude every now and again. And like, I think at one point, like Eric's playing it on a flute, you know, Mm -hmm. because he can't get it out of his head. The movie, I just don't see how the movie can exist without that because they keep coming back to it. But it's like a coming of age moment of sorts. And you really get a feel for who Ariel is as a character when she performs this song. It's really her monologue you know they've they've talked and they've gotten as far as they could with her saying you know I want to go up to the surface and Triton forbidding her and it it's it's forced it's the only thing you can do left is to just sing about it it's like any Broadway show and um 
you know, I know uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, they were the writer of the lyrics and the composer of the song. Uh, Howard Ashman did have the Broadway background. So it was just such a natural step to do this number. Um, but for me, it's not just the song. I mean, the lyrics are so, so clever, but it's this whole sequence that they built out of part of your world and it furthers the plot along it really develops the character this sequence is really what makes a disney movie a disney movie and it's all these little touches that i don't think that you could see from any other kind of animation for example most of her trinkets in her treasure trove are all clearly from shipwrecks like you mentioned before her 20 thingamabobs. They're all corkscrews. They're they're like from rum bottles and, you know, they're used to plug up the barrels. And most of the things that you see that she's picking up or that are lying around the floor, it's jewelry, it's music boxes. These are all things that you would find on ships. So, you know, she's been doing the dives. It's not necessarily, you know, she shouldn't have a couch in there or anything because she doesn't have access to it. So I feel like it's just one of the things that the animators were really, really smart about because not that this is a period piece, but they did just put it in the context of the rest of the film. And, um, you know, they clearly had some fun with it. Yeah, the the amazing thing too, if you once you've seen the movie a couple of times, you pick up on things that maybe you didn't look out for the first time or two that you watched it. And it wasn't until, I, and I've been watching this movie for 30 years, it wasn't until this last viewing when I really listened to the lyrics of that song where she's doing what would I give and what would I do. She's completely foreshadowing what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And that th all the credit in the world really due to Howard Ashman. Howard Ashman was so talented. He wrote Little Shop of Horrors. Like you said, he had that uh, that Broadway background. And and Jody Benson did such a nice job singing it because she's got an incredible voice. But the way she inflected certain things was a direct effect of Howard Ashman's direction in the sound booth. I mean, he he directed her to feel those lyrics, and that strong that or that song is as strong and as powerful as it is because of Howard Ashman, because he wrote the lyrics and because he directed them the right way. And it does such a good job of walking the line of Ariel is determined and she knows what she wants, but she's still a kid because you you have lyrics, like you said, about what would I give and what would I do? But you also have what's a fire and why does it what's the word burn? She's still not only not part of the human world and she doesn't know these things, but she's still a child. She can't really wrap her mind around something like that. And like, how would you even have fire in the ocean? You can't, it's impossible. You have no idea what it is. So to just sprinkle things like that in to me is, is just so clever and so brilliant. And I feel like a lot of the times because the music is so strong, a lot of lyrics like that get lost and you don't really pick up on how smart they are. Even for the rest of this sequence, um, you know, she, towards the end of the song, she's swimming up through the grotto to the very top of it. And you see the magnitude of stuff that she's collected. And it's this huge space. But then when she gets to the top, she reaches her hand through this little hole. And 
it's just one of those things to me that's such a brilliant Disney touch because it makes her feel trapped. She's got all of these collectibles and she's a princess of the sea. The sea is limitless, but they put her in this little hole to show that she's trapped. And then at the very, very end of the sequence, you're looking down at her from the top of that hole. And it just, you know, reinforces the plot of she's stuck in this position and she's going to do whatever it takes to get herself out of it. And I just feel like that's something as a kid you're never really going to pick up on. But watching it now, it's just something I appreciate so much. It's such a big moment because it, it defines the entire film because it's it's her entire motivation. And it, it, it does so well in describing like you you get an idea for who she is. But now you get an idea for why she is and how she is. And when they come back to it later with the I don't know when and I don't know how, but I know something's starting right now. It's like you now she's ready to roll. She's ready to take that step. That's it's a huge moment for the character. It's a huge moment for the film. Again, it's something that it pushes the film to the next really to the next half and it pushes it over the top. I was going to say and it's it's such an amazing climax with a wave coming over her on that rock. It's an amazing climax to what is it's it it's better than top 5. It's probably a top 3 song in the history of Disney musicals. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, back to script a little bit. Like if you're looking at a movie in three acts, which is usually how it's broken down, that is the big punch at the end of the first act that's going to drive her decisions moving forward and then the next you know the next song that you get or one of the next songs that you get um is under the sea which has become another timeless disney song and and it was on every sing-along tape every everybody knows under the sea I mean, everybody knows Part of Your World, but I think everybody just knows that song. And it's so well done because to make Sebastian a Jamaican crab and they do Brilliant. this like reggae, you know, this... this Caribbean... This, it was just so perfect. And the way that they were able to take the music that they wrote and the animators work with that. And now they're they're plugging away and they're grabbing things that are in the ocean. Like what looks like it could make this sound? Uh, and... It's so convincing. Again, that's the brilliant of Howard Ashman is, you know, at the end of the song when they're saying the newt plays the flute and that whole the little... plays the harp. And... Yeah, that whole little section, it's just such clever writing. And again, I feel like that's something where the music builds so much and it's so energetic that like you lose a little bit of the words in there. But it's just like such brilliant writing. And even now when we go to the parks... And you're walking around like I hear under the sea and I just it's impossible not to dance. I think a little bit is that it takes me right back to my childhood and it was my favorite song growing up. But a lot of it is that it's just so darn catchy. The only criticism I have of it, and you talked about it just now, is that the audio is not mixed very well. Because there, to this day, again, I've been watching this movie for nearly 30 years. There's a good portion of that song. I'll say 25 percent of that song. I have no idea what Sebastian's saying because he says it quick and he has the Jamaican accent, but the music overtakes him. Like I, I've had to go and read the lyrics to understand what he's saying because he's just drowned out. I think it's less the accent and more that it's. I only just learned the lyrics, the trout rocking out. 
that was like the one little piece of the song that I never got in that part at the end. And it wasn't until we were like watching the behind the scenes footage that somebody actually just said it. They didn't sing it. You just heard it with nothing behind it. And I was like, oh, well, that's brilliant, too. The other song that's that's so tremendous in this film is uh, is Poor Unfortunate Souls. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. It is. You you have an, an affinity for the villain songs. I really do. I love because I, I don't know I don't know how to read you. <laughs> I don't know what that says about you. I probably like the villain numbers. Like we just got done picking apart part of your world and what a brilliant sequence it is, sequence it is. But like when I think of the villain numbers, they are my favorite. They're you know we hit on it before is that Howard Ashman came from a Broadway background and the villains are so theatrical. And I think that's what I love so much about it. It's always a big number. They have like these booming voices and they're belting it out and there's smoke behind them. And even, you know, not just poor unfortunate souls, but like one of my other favorites is scar in the lion King. Like that's one of my favorite numbers. I, I just love it. Uh, when he sings, be prepared and, Another show for another time, but I just love these big theatrical performances. And I mean, you know me, I love Broadway, but I think that's where you see the Broadway influences the most is in these villain songs. And one one thing to touch on quickly in regards to The Lion King, you want to talk about how special Howard Ashman was as a, as a songwriter and a lyricist. When he passed away and they no longer had him, who did they turn to when they no longer had his music? Elton John. Right. That's that's your that's your that's your replacement. Right. Is Elton John. Yeah. And Tim Rice. That's a really I mean, good you point. really have to think about that. <laughs> you, you know, it's it's an incredible compliment paid to to somebody whose life was cut short uh unfortunately and left us with a lot of music unwritten. Um but uh again, that's it's another story for another day. But poor unfortunate souls um we found out last night in watching this behind-the-scenes documentary that that was not the original song that they had for her. Uh, they had written a song called Silence is Golden, but Howard Ashman didn't like it, and they cut it. And when you listen to it, it it's a weak song. Like, they, they, they hit a home run cutting that. That's one of those that's it's okay to be on the cutting room floor and replace it with this. Right. Because, again, it's... How does the movie... I mean, the movie can exist without Poor Unfortunate Souls, but it puts it over the top. Right. It's a fun number. I mean, think about it. This is when she trades her voice for legs and she physically signs that contract. Can you imagine a movie where that was all done just through dialogue without no. the big music and the theatrics behind it? It would have been so boring. It would have just felt so flat. And instead, you've got, you know, Ursula spinning her tentacles around and just throwing all this stuff into the cauldron and making this potion. And you actually... You know, it's done through a series of quick flashes, but you see the transformation of Ariel. If you don't have music behind it, you have nothing. Yeah. And and, and the, the just the way that they're able to cut back and forth between her and Ariel, and you know, and it, it and she it doesn't take her to say it, but it just adds to it when she's like the now I got her boys, the boss is on a roll. It's like she's so arrogant, but she has the right to be because she knows that she snagged her. She yes. know that she that was no pun intended. She that was her big catch. She got her. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, no, you you can tell they had a lot of fun with Ursula. In the animation itself, like with her tentacles and just the the voice and the performance of it, it she's she's fantastic. Is she a villain? Yeah, but I I love her. I in fact, the movie that I want to see is Poor Unfortunate Souls <laughs> because it's not just about the character for me, but when you look at Ursula's quote unquote garden she calls it it's all of these mer people that have been transformed and yes they left it on the cutting room floor that she's triton's sister but like at the end of the movie when triton defeats ursula all of these mer people swim back up to the surface and there are i would say like upwards of 50 of them i want to see that story like what have you been up to that you've captured all of them Mm, yeah so, I mean, you run through everything, and, and now that the movie is, you know, nearly 30 years old, you have to look at it and you go, does the film hold up? I don't think I need to answer that question. I think that if you go into New Fantasyland at Walt Disney World, you see the wait to get into Ariel's Grotto, you see the wait to get into Under the Sea, look at the merchandise. There's, there's countless children dressed as Ariel. This movie without question, not only holds up, but continues to stand in the top five of all-time Disney animated features. Absolutely. I don't think it's just what this movie means to our generation. I, it, it is a pillar of this company. It kicked off the renaissance, but it's more than that. They just made a strong movie. It was exactly what this company needed at exactly the right time it's it's timeless like how dare we even question it right absolutely um and you part of it is the music a big part of it is the music but it's the characters i think it's the characters ariel you look at her as a character and she's brave and she's endearing and you know she's she's relatable because everybody whether you're male or female had that teenage angst that you could relate back to and being rebellious. Uh, I think that she is one of the most relatable. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be, uh, you know, uh, a maid that's going to put on a, a glass slipper. I hope not. There's, I mean, hey, it's an interesting <laughs> world to live in. And there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of room for experimentation. But, but I was a teenager. And I, I did have angst and I was a rebel. Not not as much as some others, but I was. She's everybody. That's what makes her so incredible. She's everybody. Right. And I think, too, uh, more than just Ariel, um, I think this is the first time that we see, like, a really strong prince. I mean, there is a shift in this movie in that... It is a very strong female. It's not like those flowery princesses like I was talking about before. Um, You know, like in Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, the prince's only job was to kiss the princess and bring her out of this eternal sleep. Um, It's Eric's job to kiss Ariel and make, you know, she needs him to fall in love with her. But I feel like Eric is the first actual like strong prince that we've seen. Because when they open the movie, he's on a ship and he's sailing and they're fishing. And one of the first 
questions later on watching it. Of course, like, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really think about things like this. But I was like, he's a prince. What is he doing working? He, he's the working man's prince. Um, you know, he's doing this when he doesn't have to. And, um, you know, I think that he's one of the first princes, too, where you actually see a little bit of character. And, you know, he goes back to save his dog when the boat is on fire. We've never seen anything like that. And it makes you like really care about Eric. And you have to because you have to relate to Ariel and why she's going to trade her whole life to go after him. But um, I I kind of feel like this is Disney's first like power couple. Like they're a team. Even when they bring Ursula down at the end, Ariel didn't wait for her hero to come in and save her. Like they're they're working together to do it. She goes after Ursula. She jumps on her head and she tries to misfire the Triton. And that gives... Eric enough time to go get his boat and ultimately kill Ursula. You, you've you not seen a prince and a princess working together like this to defeat the evil. No. I mean, to an extent, maybe the way that the character is acted out, he... the the And I, I don't know the actor's name. I, I forget his name, admittedly. He kind of comes off as any Prince USA, but that's how he performed the character. Right. The character itself is very strong. We forgot about Kiss the Girl. We talked about the music, and we forgot about Kiss the Girl, um, which we, we have to touch on it. It's another really good film, and it, like, you know how it's going to end because you've seen the movie so many times, but the build-up to that, to that moment where the boat gets flipped, even still watching it now, I'm like, hey, kiss the girl, you know? <laughs> <laughs> just get it done. <laughs> they did, and it, again, it, it, it was a great collaboration between the songwriters and the animators. Yeah, no, it it's for such a pretty number, it creates a lot of tension. It was a little confusing that you kind of go from what seems to be the French countryside to the bayou. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how we got there on a rowboat. <laughs> but uh but it, but a, a nice scene and nicely animated and just just a good song. Yeah, no, it is it, it is like a nice it's a nice like breather kind of a number and it's it's another um it's another scene where sebastian really steps up and you really get to feel for who he is and what you know what his motivations are and just how he he's so dedicated to making sure that she gets what she needs so that he can save her and i think that's where sebastian becomes it's at that point where he really becomes the character that you love in this film. A soft shell, as he puts it. Yes. I love me some Sebastian. And I mean, obviously, I think he's got the best song of the musical, Under the Sea, and you love him for that. But like, even just from the very beginning, the first time you see him when they're at the concert and he's got his music and he's just taking it so, so seriously. It's just such good character development right out of the gate. Like you've got such a picture of this like high strung, stressed out little crab. And I, I just love him. It's funny. I'll tell you a story that you probably, you, I don't think you've ever heard this story. When we were, when we were kids and this movie came out in my house, we used to have a fish tank. You know, we had tropical fish and we did have a crab. So of course we named the crab Sebastian. Well, Crabs don't live forever, but your parents don't want to tell you that when you're like four years old. Right. So we were told that Sebastian had gotten too big for the fish tank and he went to go live at Grand Union, <laughs> <laughs> which was a grocery store down the road. 
and they had a lobster tank and we would have to go oh, and when we went grocery shopping when I was really little we'd say we have to go visit Sebastian <laughs> and my mom would just point at a lobster and say yeah there's him oh my god the guy in the seafood section must have thought we were out of our mind <laughs> well like initially I, I look back and think we must have been out of our minds but I think there were so many kids that were going there to say hello to their Sebastian that, that it probably just became something they knew in the grocery store you weren't alone I'm sure wow that's some brilliant parenting yeah. on your parents' part. Well done. I had an angel fish named Ariel, and we had her for 16 years. I kid you not. That's She's incredible. And I'm not, you know, my parents didn't, like, replace her and fake us out. Like, she was too distinct to be able to ever do something like that. She survived the the ceiling collapse, and everything landed in the fish tank. She was the only one that made it. But, like, 16 years, she was a strong little gal. Um. Ursula, as a character, is one of the most fun Disney villains of all time. We talked about that before. But it's just everything about that character, her attitude, her body language, her demeanor. Again, perfect um, you know, partnership between the actress, the songwriters, the animators. She's got like a sassiness and a flamboyance, and it all just works. Yeah. I said I don't I'm not a fan I just don't like the guy we're gonna have to agree to disagree on that one I think he's the most endearing father I'm I'm like shocked to learn this about you yeah he's just he's not my cup of tea what can I tell you no I I just think he's a big softy and flounder we know is a lot of fun like you said in terms of a in terms of sidekick duos um Sebastian and and flounder and scuttle are as good as they get I love Flounder's relationship to Ariel and that he's so loyal to her. He's he's like a dog. He's like a dog of the sea. But I also love his relationship with Sebastian because at first he's kind of double-crossing Sebastian to help Ariel when they're going up to the shipwrecks and they're going up to the surface and things like that. But by the end, they have to work together to help Ariel. No, he's, he's the perfect sidekick. They're, and they're good comic relief. Yes. You know, that's that's part of what made this, for lack of a better term, it's a unisex movie. Because for all intents and purposes, this should be a movie that is geared towards girls. But it's not. This movie is able to cater to everyone. Like I said, Ariel's a relatable character, but five-year-old boys probably don't relate to her. But they'll love Scuttle and Sebastian and Flounder, and they like Eric I think everybody likes Ursula because she's psychotic and she's horrifying. She's just a good, she's a good character. Speaking of comic relief, though, even more so than Flounder and Sebastian, my favorite comic relief is Chef Louie in this movie. I love that whole little sequence. It's just such a one-off thing. Granted, yes, it reinforces why the fish and the people are afraid of humans, but that number is so much fun. I, I just love the idea of this lunatic, lunatic chef. The same way that I want to see a spinoff of Poor Unfortunate Souls, I want to see Chef Louis' Kitchen. Give like, him a reality show. Could you imagine him and the Swedish chef in like a buddy <laughs> cop show? <laughs> if you listen to that song that he sings, though, it sounds a lot like Be Our Guest. He doesn't know. It's French. So I see where you would think that. But that... Da-da-da. It does kind of, it lends itself to be our guest. Yeah, no, you're right. right. Um, 
And Scuttle is, is you know, we talked about him a little bit before. It, it amazes me that when you watch the opening credits that Buddy Hackett got sixth bill in this movie when he was really the only actor you had ever heard of. Yeah. Was it, was it like alphabetized? Because clearly you caught this in the credits that he was sixth bill. And I, didn't, I didn't see it. But even still, the man was a legend. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not disagreeing with you. But I'm saying, do you recall if they like listed them alphabetically? I don't recall I can't if they imagine if, he'd be that far back. But if it, even with his last name H, does he fall back to six? Wasn't a big cast. Benson would be before it. Um, like, I don't know if Sam Wright was ahead of him or not. Sam Wright was the actor that played Sebastian. I know I'm not is. sure. But not everybody does. <laughs> Remember, this isn't just you and I talking in the kitchen now. We have a microphone <laughs> in front of us. Um, yeah, I, I don't recall if it was alphabetical or not. But even still, he was, he was really, unless you followed theater, he was the only uh, actor that you would have known in this film. Right. Or he should have gotten like maybe a separate card with, you know, something how they did with the voice talents of yes. Buddy Hackett or something like that. It should have been like a solo card. It should have stood out a little bit more. That's that's kind of surprising. Um, in all, it's it's a great film. And now they're starting to do these live action takes on these movies. We saw it with The Jungle Book. We saw it with Cinderella. Uh, we saw them do Maleficent. Now I'd be interested to see if they did eventually do an Ursula movie, though I don't think we're going to see one for a long time because we know, I want to say it's 2019, might be 2020, but I'm almost positive it's 2019, that they have, oh, we saw in Beauty and the Beast they did it too, um, I believe it's 2019, they have the live action Little Mermaid is slated for release. Well, we know coming up on the pike we've definitely got mary poppins that's going to come out at the end of this year we've got the dumbo and we have um mulan that have all been announced i feel like they keep kicking around little mermaid i and i could be very wrong i might even be losing my mind on this one i thought at one point they were going to do little mermaid with miley cyrus which i really hope is not the case but i also i think, don't think they're going to now <laughs> no i think this was like pre vma's performance that they were doing that but um if they were to do it i mean i would love to see the live action but i would almost like to see them do like a maleficent take on it and and do this on Ursula's backstory. I think you've got like a really strong story there, especially because you cut out so many important things about Ursula. I personally would rather see an Ursula movie at this point than see a Little Mermaid remake. That's sort of my feeling. Just for fun though, if they were, who would you cast in the live action remake? So I only have, because we've talked about this almost at nauseum, there's only two characters that I cast um, and they were Ariel and Ursula. Um, and and the two casting choices, it, it, for me at least, it didn't take long to get there. But I'm interested to see where you're going with it because I feel like there's a chance that you and I are overlapping on Ursula. I was. I feel like if we don't have the same person for Ariel, I'm I'm going to be shocked because I think the casting choice is just so obvious for her. And so do I. So it's going to be interesting if we don't match. Who who who? I'll let you go first. Who do you have for Ariel? Yeah, Anna Kendrick. That's who I had. Yeah, yeah. I would I would have loved. Well, I keep I keep thinking Anne Hathaway because I so wanted her to be Belle, but I think that she was a little bit too old. Uh, at the time that they remade Beauty and the Beast, but I just feel like Anna Kendrick like em 
she just embodies Disney. Like she was in Into the Woods and she was a great casting choice for that. But um, I just, I feel like she's got just the right amount of spunkiness to pull off Ariel. Um, and, and I think she looks just looks like the part. Her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we know she's got the pipes. Yes. Yeah. No, I think she'd be great for Ariel. Um, I also had a Sebastian in mind and I feel like if they remake it and they don't use this, I will have lost my faith in Disney. Wayne Brady. Yeah. He would be outstanding. Yeah. I, I feel like you have to. We know he can sing. And uh, he's worked for ABC. Yeah. Whose line is it anyway? Was on ABC. I, I think he'd and just he just be a talk great. Show on ABC, the yes. Wayne Brady Show. And I just think that if Sebastian were a person, that's what you'd get. <laughs> yeah, uh, I wonder though, because he's on. He's doing. Let's make a deal. So he's he's got a CBS contract. I wonder if that extends over to ABC properties, the intellectual properties, meaning that he could not do a film for Disney? I don't know. I mean, I don't know how his contract works. Well, we are talking about a live action film, but I feel like Sebastian, you would still have He'd to animate. CGI. So maybe they'll be a little bit, bit lenient for, I, I don't know. We're talking about a bunch of what if and maybes, but I think he'd be perfect. He would be. I hadn't even thought about that. And who do you have for Ursula? I actually, why don't you go first? Because I have three what I think are strong arguments for Ursula. So obviously you need somebody that has a theater background. That's that's sort of my feeling on it because theatrical character. Um, Maybe we do have the same person. Sarah Ramirez. Audience, you cannot see my jaw on the floor right now. That's my pick. That's brilliant. Sean, you just out-Broadwayed me. I'm, I'm not okay with this. I mean, we know she... A lot of people know her from Grey's Anatomy, but... You know, they did that one stupid episode of that the show. Musical, where yeah. They did the musical, and it was garbage. But <laughs> she, um, and, and I, I watched it with you. I haven't watched the show in years. I watched it with you, and I was, I just remember thinking, this is so stupid, but she sounds great. And as it turns out, she was in Spamalot. She was in Spamalot, yeah. She, she was the original cast of Spamalot. And she sort of played that, like, big like bombastic and theatrical and over the top flamboyant character. Yeah. I think she I think she would um I think she'd be good casting. And you know that it, you know that Disney has a thing for her. I think she'd be absolutely fantastic. I mean like yeah, you wouldn't really know if you know her from Grey's Anatomy because she is so serious on that show, but Spamalot was a straight comedy musical. Like she's funny. She's got the chops where she could do. I think she'd bring lots of well I don't even know if I want to say mine anymore. <laughs> My gosh, that's amazing. That would be perfect. Well, See you next week, everyone. Thanks. <laughs> no, seriously, you just out-Broadwayed me. That's not okay. Um, no, I had a couple of ideas. Um, if you've done your homework on this movie, you know that Ursula was based off of... Now, I'm not talking about the voice. I'm talking about the aesthetic and the character as a whole Ursula was actually modeled off of this like drag queen cross-dresser what that Howard Ashman knew yeah D her name what? was divine that was her stage name what I, I know for a Disney movie that's it's kind of shocking that they would even okay and for the, for the time in the 80s yeah it's interesting that they would even <laughs> They'd even consider something like that, but she was modeled off of a drag queen, and oh my god, you're not kidding. No, why would I lie? No, but like 
that's convincing. Like, that's straight up. Yeah, no, look it up. Look it up. But I would actually like to see something like that. If they really wanted to, um, you know, I would love to see somebody do drag and and be Ursula. And I mean, we've seen this in Hairspray. If you do know theater, Travolta and um, Harvey Firestein did it for Broadway in the original cast. So I, I would like to see something like that. That's actually where I got the idea from for Wayne Brady because I thought maybe he could have some fun with it. And I was like, nah, he's so much better for Sebastian. But like with the right guy, I feel like you could just do so much with it. Um, my other choices would be, I think this one is fairly obvious. I think Queen Latifah would be killer as Ursula. Maybe not as killer as Sarah Ramirez, but that would have been my top choice. And... Just hear this one out. Stick with me on it. Although, uh, clearly you're not, you can't be offended, or not offended, but you can't be as shocked uh, more than the drag queen. But I think Idina Menzel would be a great Ursula. Just hear me out. You know I'm a fanzel. That's something that is going to come out probably at some point in every single episode that we do. But um, obviously, everybody knows our Elsa. But if you do know Idina's background, she comes from Broadway. She was the original cast of Rent, and she was the original cast of Wicked. And I'm thinking about her performance in Wicked when she finally accepts that she is going to be the Wicked Witch. And she sings a song called No Good Deed Goes Unpunished. And she just owns the fact that no matter what she does, no matter how much good she tries to do, it's circumvented and it blows up in her face. And it's a really strong number. And it's not the smooth song that Let It Go is, you know, she's kind of like yelling and she's a little raspy. And that's what I'm thinking of would translate over to Poor Unfortunate Soul. She would be a good choice. She has the vocal chops. She has the acting chops. Clearly, she's got the theater background that I think you need for the character. I just don't see Disney necessarily using her in two roles at the same time. True. I mean, they used to do it a lot back in the day. Well, you signed a contract with the studio. But back in the day. But now you sign a con- but she signed a contract with the studio. They're just going to ke- they're going to keep her as Elsa for as long as they can. True. She's just going to keep rolling out film after film. You know, they they they're working on the Jungle Cruise. Lane Johnson's playing the lead with um uh Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt. That's interesting because Emily Blunt is crossing over and doing Jungle Cruise and Mary Poppins. And she also did Into the Woods. And she did Into the Woods. But originally, the rumor was years ago that that was going to be a vehicle for Tom Hanks and Tim Allen. But right. they didn't do it because they're already buzzing Woody. So I just, I wonder if, it maybe it's different because they're voicing characters and they don't want kids to get confused. Like, why is Woody a Jungle Cruise skipper? Why is Elsa now Ursula? Maybe I think it's different maybe when it's live action, but they want those voices associated to certain characters now, I feel. It's not to say that it's impossible. I'm just not sure that I see them doing it at this point. Yes and no, but you have Josh Gad as Olaf and LeFou. That's true. That's true. So in my dream world, Idina is going to be Ursula. Let me have this one. I think either way, I would be shocked... If any of those four that we mentioned were not selected, I just feel, I mean, now they could go and get somebody we've never heard of, though I doubt it. 
Or they could go out of left field and really get somebody, like when they cast... The Unknown. Right, right, exactly. It's not impossible. I mean, not likely, though certainly not impossible. I mean, the only one, and like I said, I am a fan, but I feel like I'm so attached to this idea of Sebastian as Wayne Brady. That'll be the only one that I'm like super broken up about if it doesn't happen. Um, so in all, final analysis of this film, phenomenal. And, 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 and has, has stood the test of time and will continue to stand the test of time. Yeah, the the only thing that they're really going to have to address if they do the live action, and we didn't really hit on this at all because it is something that's minor, but it and it's a throwaway line in the beginning is that Ariel is 16 years old. So to me, that works in the f- sense of her relationship to her father because she has to obey him, but it doesn't necessarily work in the sense of you've made the decision to not only get married, but to sort of throw your life away as you know it to go get married to, I believe, a 21-year-old. They're going to have to adjust the ages a bit. That's something, I mean, like, really, I feel like I'm nitpicking it apart because, as I said, it is a throwaway line, but... It's something that you don't notice as a kid, but you kind of do question when you're older. Like when she gets the legs, they bring her to the surface and now you've got a naked 16 year old running around and she's got her seashells on. But like legs aren't the only thing that she got. Yeah, I know. And 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 I didn't notice that until we watched the movie this last time. It was when you're five years old, it's not what you're looking for. Not that I'm saying I'm, I'm necessarily looking for it now in my 30s. You're not looking to see a 16 year old animated character without any clothes on but it does stand out right and especially when they're like oh we got to get her dressed i'm like oh that's right she's not dressed yeah because she stands up out of the water but they cut away obviously of course of course they're going to and obviously they're not going to put nudity in a disney film if they do this live action but as far as that sequence goes i feel like that's something the sequence and and the age that's something that they would have to address should they modernize it yeah, I would agree. I, I think you're right. But in all, I, I just feel like this movie isn't going to go away anytime soon. Not that you want it to, of course. Um, I think that... And now, it's certainly... It, it's it's like anything else. When we were kids in the 90s, um, I remember in... I want to say it was about 1996. The big fashion statement for girls were bell-bottom jeans. Well, why was that the case? Because our parents wore bell-bottom jeans. Now, you're starting to see this movie kind of make a resurgence because our generation are starting to raise their children on these films. What's one of the first, if not the first film they're going to show them? It's going to be this one. Yeah. And now, this generation is going to have an attachment to The Little Mermaid because it was the first one that they saw. Let's fast forward 30 years. They're going to have their children that's going to be the first one that they see. You're starting to see it even so with, uh, say, The Jungle Book. Right. Jungle Book was one of the first Disney movies that I ever saw. Coincidentally now, you have this this live-action Jungle Book remake, which Favreau did a great job with. Our generation took, you know, our children to go see it, you know, if you are of our generation with children. You're, you're starting to see it, I and I think that these movies are just going to keep coming back over and over and over. Why do you think it is that Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Pinocchio, these movies are 75, 80 years old, 
they keep coming back every few years. Right. Snow White just got a ride right. all over again. You know, so and and not not that the animation isn't sophisticated for the time it was, but you, when you put that up against something like Toy Story, a kid nowadays isn't they're not going to be impressed by it. But they have that association with it being one of the first films that they saw being raised on those movies. This one's just going to keep coming back. No, and I think that's part of the reason why we really wanted to start this podcast is not just because of our love of the Disney company and Disney movies is that, you know, it is just such a timeless thing. And I love that it's something that you can enjoy generation to generation. One one of few things that's just never, ever going to go away. The movies, the parks, it's just something that, it's what Walt wanted. He wanted families to be in, to en- be able to enjoy it forever and ever. Yeah, and they will. For as long as the company is run properly and it's in great hands right now with Bob Iger, um, it will continue to be run uh, in that very special way. Now, some news and rumors from this week. We got a new Wreck-It Ralph trailer. Ralph Breaks the Internet. Oh and God. and the news drops that Gal Gadot is uh is in the film. Wonder I, Wonder Woman is in the film. I can't wait for this movie. I loved the first one and I feel like that was a love letter to our generation. Absolutely. But these trailers, oh my god, they're so funny and then they start poking fun at themselves. Oh, she's from the other studio. <laughs> it's, it was I ha- I couldn't stop laughing. I-, I bet you I've watched that trailer 25 times, and every time I see that part of that trailer, I laugh like I've never seen it before. It looks amazing. Now, I can't wait. you had a rumor that you wanted to talk about uh, a director that, that you like. I mean, a lot of... I love him, too. Uh, talking about independent properties uh, or intellectual properties that Disney looks like they're going to start developing. There's somebody that may be in... That may be in the works right now. Well, maybe I don't. I don't want to start a rumor here, but this is just me connecting dots and wishful thinking. Um, after Kevin Smith had his heart attack, uh, he went to Disney World with his family, and he posted a picture about it and said, um, "I'm doing research for my next project." And I went, "Oh, it definitely caught my attention." And then I think it was. Maybe two weeks ago, he posted a picture of a script and said, this is a script of the largest intellectual property I've ever done. So with those two things in mind, and like I said, I'm, I don't want to start anything. I'm just connecting the dots here. I think that maybe he's going to have a hand in some kind of Star Wars thing because he is such a Star Wars fan. Um, you know, I know Solo didn't really perform the way that they wanted it to, box office wise, but they've been talking about doing a Boba Fett movie for a while. Uh, I've also heard that they're going to do maybe a Lando Calrissian movie. So I'm wondering if he'll get to do one of those. Um, there's also the new Disney streaming service. He might be doing some sort of, uh, you know, like straight to streaming original content series there's well, a lot that they could do they hired favreau to do to the do star, the star Wars yeah, 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 yeah but but they've also they announced that they're doing uh they're doing a live action remake of lady and the tramp that's going directly to the streaming service now i don't think kevin smith's going to do lady and the tramp but he certainly could be involved in something marvel related that too i mean he's such a comic book nerd that would be great so i think uh i think that's that's a strong way to uh to leave it off for now, uh, a little our news, food for thought, a little food for thought, a little news and rumors. 
Um, please uh, make sure that you like uh, our page on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Um, yeah, let us know what you think at Monoreal Radio about Kevin Smith uh, possibly working with Disney. Yeah, we're interested to get your feedback and if there's any films that you would like us to watch or what your opinions of these films are. Uh, we'd love to share what you have to say on the program next week. You can email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. We're going to be just about everywhere, but we're going to start definitely with the Facebook and the Twitter, and you can find us there, at Monoreal Radio. So for Jackie, I'm Sean. We are so thrilled that you gave us your time. Have a magical week. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.